0: i turn this evening in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8 again, just by way of introduction. We've been going over some of these promissory passages, and of course this particular area of Scripture in Romans chapter 8 is one of those rich, rich loads that is filled with great promises, powerful promises. And last week, uh, you remember, we went to Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> um, and we said... Uh, well, you could go into any section that we've done in verse 28, but last time we went into verse 32. Uh, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And you'll notice that that verse is bracketed, uh, sandwiched between two, verse 31 verse 33. And if you look at both verse 31 and 33, you'll see the assurance of an inviolable salvation, an incorruptible salvation. Verse 31, What then shall we say to these things, if God be for us, who is against us? Now, we've gone over this so many times, but it bears repeating that in practice, when you uh, get involved with these promises, um, after you claim them, the big step, of course, uh, is this one where, you, I call it the prayer meeting of the soul, where you develop a rationale and think about it. Is this, otherwise it becomes a good luck charm, and the Christian walk isn't uh, beads and good luck charm. It's, it's understanding truth and the nature of our God. So you have to have a sense of a positive rationale, and that means to apply the scripture, and negatively it means to become convinced that anything unscriptural is is hot air, it's just vanity. And in verse 31's case, uh, the only way you could substantiate the second half of verse 31 is go back to the creative creature distinction, let's just think about this, this is an example of thinking through something in a very simple way. Um, verse 31 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God before us, who can be against us? Well, if God is on the same plane with Satan and and other gods, then lots of people can be against us. Verse 31 presupposes and is built out of the creator-creature distinction. Uh, In verse 33, the other side of the sandwich, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And that's the finality of justification. Um, that's what we were talking about last week when we got into this business of faith and assurance and so on, which we'll continue this evening. But th- this whole section of Romans pre- it presumes there's a theological structure here going on. It presumes that history is shaped in a certain way, it presumes the creator creature distinction. And If you didn't have that background, if we really weren't sure of the creator-creature distinction, if history wasn't shaped by a sovereign plan of God, it's all air. Verse 31 is just air. Verse 33 is just air. And the way to think about it, and the negative side of the the thing, uh, to think of it as air, is that all the positive thinking in the world isn't going to solve a problem if it's not real. It's just psychological gimmicks. And the world is full of psychological gimmicks. And I'm sad to say that many churches are full of psychological gimmicks. Uh, this is peddled, and it's peddled even in Christian circles. It, there's no substitute for truth. That is where your soul rests. And only as you recognize truth do you ever get to the third step where you have a faith rest. Can't get there. No way. Can you get there if you're not first convinced that there's such a thing as truth and the scriptures reflect that truth. Let's bow for a word of prayer and then we'll uh, get on with the lesson tonight. Our Father, again, we come to you looking to you as the author of scripture and the interpreter of scripture. And we thank you that down through the centuries, your Holy Spirit has taught the church many things. Many of these have been put into creeds, so we don't have to keep rethinking them. But on the other hand, all of it derives from the text. So we ask for sharp eyes and sharp minds tonight as we consider the great issues of the Reformation on down to our own century. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been going through... um, the nature of Reformed theology over against dispensational theology. And I want to draw a a diagram of what we're doing here to make clear, a little clearer than the notes, I think, make it about the relationship of these two areas. We're not drawing an either or here. Out of the Reformation came a movement to get back to the Scriptures as the authority over the Church. Lots of things came out of the Reformation, a lot of trends. And central in this trend is what we'll call the mainstream uh, Calvinistic stream. Within that stream, there are sub-trends, and heav- heavily identified with Calvinism is classic Reformed, the classic Reformed creeds. Now, also in this trend, there arose dispensationalism. Don't get the idea that Dispensationalism arose outside of Calvinism. It didn't. The Dispensationalists were Calvinists. So it's false. It's just a factually false assertion that Dispensationalism arose in opposition to the Protestant Reformation or the Reformed thought. The proper way to view it is that Dispensationalism is a later rethinking and digging in areas that the original Reformation didn't have time to do. Back here, the issues were salvation. And in the notes, we talk about that as soteriology. This was the center of the Reformation, that and the authority of Scripture. But there's lots of other areas of doctrine. The Reformation really didn't do too much with Christology, didn't have to, because Christology had already been resolved in mainstream Christendom by that time. But there were a lot of other things, and one of the other things was eschatology or prophecy. And this was not handled in the Reformation. Again we said that the Reformation Persisted Roman Catholic eschatology, amillennialism. The man who promoted amillennialism was Augustine. And Augustine was a very influential thinker, and he left his shadow over the church in many, many different areas. And one of the dangerous things about Augustine is that, first of all, man didn't know any Hebrew. So he couldn't study the Old Testament in the original languages. He knew Latin, knew a little Greek, and out of that he formulated his theology. And what he did was introduce into the church an idea of symbolic interpretation. Augustine was the guy, by the way, who said the days in Genesis couldn't be days. Augustine was the guy who said that any idea that, that the Kingdom of God being physical was just not spiritual. Augustine was the man who introduced all these things, okay? And when the Reformers came and did, had to do battle over here, they liked some things that Augustine said. Augustine was very strong in the sovereignty of God, and God was the author of history and had to be because he lived in the, fall, the days of the fall of Rome, and he was developing the City of God versus the City of Man. So he had a view, strong view, biblical view of history, and so the reformers were attracted by that. And since Augustine was all millennial, they just kind of went along with Augustine. But George uh, sent me an email of a of a reformed uh, little reformed paper here, and I want to read you sections of it because if you've paid attention the last two weeks, well, we've gone through and got the notes, pages one through three and four. You should understand something and listen and watch and observe carefully. This guy is speaking. He's the professor of church history and New Testament at Protestant Reformed Seminary. And he's describing why the Reformation repudiated what he calls Killeism. And Killeism is a belief in a thousand-year reign of Christ. It's basically premillennialism. Now, if you look carefully at the notes, back on page 3, down at the bottom, you'll see where I list the uh, problem of eschatology. Remember, there were three areas that I hit in the notes where Protestant Reformation didn't have time. This is not criticizing the Reformers. If we were doing what they were doing, we wouldn't have done any better than they did. They had all the battles that they could face, and we can't expect of them to completely overhaul the whole house of theology. Down at the bottom of page three, there's a statement that says, in addition to continuing Roman Catholic practices of infant baptism and state sponsorship, And I want you to think about what state sponsorship means. Reformed theology also perpetuated Roman Catholic amillennial eschatology. Included in this eschatological view were the idea of replacement theology, whereby the church replaced Israel in God's plan, and so forth and so on. And then if you read down about four or five lines, there's a sentence that starts, A great variety of prophetic ideas which were not well developed from the scripture arose within Anabaptists. Now, if you have a little pencil, just notice, not well developed. Okay? Okay. Eschatology is an exceedingly complex area of interpretation that takes much detailed study, something that was not possible during the post-Reformation era. Okay. Further sentence. The departures from classical amillennialism were viewed with alarm by Lutherans and Reformed churches political radicalism came to be associated with such departures so that Lutherans, Reformed churches, and Roman Catholics united against so-called radical reformers who entertained, and, quote, please notice, fragmentary versions of premillennialism and other more literal approaches to the prophetic scriptures. Now let me transfer, it, and you listen now, to this professor of church history, who is a classic reform person. And he's dealing with this, and he's trying to tell us why the Protestant Reformation turned aside. Now, I'm spending a few minutes tonight on this because if you go to the creeds of Reformed theology today, you will find within them they prohibit belief in premillennialism. It's as though it's a heresy. It's that strongly implanted. I mean, they really went on record of millennialism is the only way, and anybody else is wrong. Now, here's what happened in history. At the end of 1533, the Anabaptist group at Munster in Westphalia, under the leadership of a former Lutheran minister, Bernard Rossmann, gained control of the city council. Early in 1534, a Dutch prophet, an ex-innkeeper named John of Leiden, appeared in Munster, believing that he was called to make the city a new Jerusalem. Let's just stop there for a minute. This is a famous incident in church history, the Munster Revolt. And this is the thing that's colored and why Reformed people just see livid red when they think of premillennialism and killeism and so on. This is the source of all that. There was a historical incident that happened in this German city. But I just read you a sentence that should tip you off about something. I'll read it again, see if you catch it. You have these people floating around, they're confused, they really don't know what they believe in eschatology, and along comes a prophet believing that he was called to make the city of Munster a New Jerusalem. Is that part of premillennial theology? We're going to make Germany the New Jerusalem? I don't think so. So, right away, what we've got here is not genuine premillennialism. It's fragmentary, it's chunks and pieces floating around the culture. Some weirdos get a hold of it, just like today, and, and they run with this stuff. So, on 9 February 1534, his party seized City Hall. By the 2nd of March, all who refused to be baptized were banished. It was proclaimed a city of refuge for the oppressed. Though the Bishop of Munster collected an army and began the siege of the city, an attempted coup within the walls was brutally suppressed. John of Leiden was proclaimed King of the New Zion. Hello? Wore vestments as his royal robes, and his court and throne in the marketplace. Laws were decreed to establish community of goods, communism, and the Old Testament was adduced to permit polygamy. Bernard Rothman, once a man of sense, had a, had a friend in Melanchthon, took to nine wives. I mean, they didn't get tax deductions for doing that. So what is the what happened here? This is not substantive premillennialism. But this is the thing that all the reform people like to cite. See what happened in Munster. Now, if anything, this looks like postmillennialism to me. Because what is postmillennialism? The Church sets up the Kingdom, and then after the Church sets up the Kingdom, Christ comes. Has Christ come to Munster? No. So, an argument could be made that the Reformed people here never even saw premillennialism. What they saw was postmillennialism, which some of them are today advocating. And it goes on to describe the army and they had bloodshed and they had uprising and they had everything else. And then this professor goes on to say, thank God that the reformed people put this in the creeds to get rid of this stuff. Now, if you'll remember back two or three years ago, in part four, when I dealt with premillennialism, and I had an appendix just like we're going through now. If you'll remember, I quoted something in there about when I went through amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism. And in Amillennialism, I quoted something that says exactly what this says. I quoted the fact that Amillennialism, because it replaces Israel and has no place for Israel, tends to be anti-Semitic. Because when you have Hebrew Christians, that is, Jewish people that know their Bible, what, which testament do you think they're interested in? The Old Testament. That's why Hebrew Christians give a tremendous theological balance to the Gentile church because they, of all people, are sensitive to their Old Testament roots. And it's the exclusion of Jews from the church that let the church go in all these screwy theologies. If there had been Hebrew Christians down through the centuries, the church would never have been millennial. Nobody would have listened to Augustine. But because the church became anti-Semitic, in its response. Yes, the Jews rejected, and yes, they were vicious, and yes, they were nasties many times, but hey, you know, uh, they were nasty to Jesus, so doesn't mean you have to be nasty back to him. Well, here's what this guy says. He admits, after talking about Munster and talking about all this eschatology, he says, the main conflicts between the radicals and the reformed was not over Killeism but often involved doctrines as infant baptism, church and covenant, interpretation of scripture, and purity of life. Then he describes Calvin as the one who rejected the idea of an earthly kingdom in general. And then he, then he goes on to point out during this period when the creeds were developing and Achilles was was excluded, He says, the issue of Achilleism was sufficiently important that not only individual theologians, but also churches addressed and rejected it. Example, in 1530, the Lutheran churches adopted the Augsburg Confession. Article 17, which I quote back in my notes, back in Part 4. Article 17 condemned, quote, listen to this now, Those who scatter Jewish opinions that before the resurrection of the dead, the godly shall occupy the kingdom of the world, the wicked being everywhere suppressed, end quote. That's premillennialism. And what did these reformers know it came from? Jewish opinions. Also happens to be... Who wrote the New Testament? Jews or Gentiles? Yeah, it's Jewish opinion, all right. John was a Jew. So, here you have this emphasis, and I, clearly these guys knew what they were talking about. came out of the Jewish thought. But what I had to laugh at the end of this article. Listen to this. This explicit rejection of Kiliism, and thus all forms of premillennialism, is the confession of all reformed churches. Did you know that? You go to Presbyterian Church? It is the confession of all Reformed churches to the present day. Actually, it's not true. There's an entire seminary in St. Louis called Covenant Seminary that teaches premillennialism and they reform people. I wonder what they do about that. All Reformed churches the present day who are faithful to the Protestant Reformation, clearly the people in St. Louis, and by the way, that's the seminary Francis Schaefer came out of. Um, apparently they're not considered faithful to the Protestant tradition. As Calvin affirmed, Killeism, and listen to this sentence, and see, as you listen to this sentence, see if you can't think of where in Scripture you hear the opposite of this. Okay? Listen to the sentence. As Calvin affirmed, Killeism insults Christ and his glorious kingdom because it is unthinkable that the Christ. Who redeemed his people by sustaining the infinite and eternal wrath of God, that that Christ would be rewarded with a millennial kingdom and then turn it over to his Father. It's unthinkable to think that, this guy says. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. He says it's unthinkable to think that. Really. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 23 says, "...but each in his own order," talking about the different resurrections, plural, Christ the first fruits that's the first phase of the resurrection. After that those who are Christ at his coming, there's the rapture of the church then comes the end that's the third phase of the resurrection when either by the way notice between verse in verse 23 how many how many centuries between Christ the first fruits and those at his coming at least two a uh, two millennia, right and so between verse 23 and 24, there's another millennium. There's gaps between these. So then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death for he has put all things in subject under his feet when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him that is the Father. And when all things are subjected to him then the Son himself also will be subjected to whom? the Father. And this guy says, it is unthinkable that the Christ who redeemed His people would be rewarded with a kingdom and then turn it over to His Father. Hello? What's happening here in 1 Corinthians 15? So, I'm just reading that to show you that my I'm trying to be nice here to to the Reformed theologian, and I I think from this paper tonight you've seen that I haven't exaggerated what they're saying. Alright, now we have gone through the TULIP acrostic, showing you that each one of those has an element of truth in it, and we can agree heartily and scripturally with much of what is in each of those acrostics. It's just that they all have a twist to them, and That twist makes it very difficult to defend the Reformed ideas when you get into the text of the Scriptures. We concluded the last time with P, perseverance of the elect. And I want to go over that again because it's going to catch up with us again in this section. The issue in the perseverance of faith is, uh, perseverance of the elect, is how you think about faith. And it still is with us today. There are two ways of viewing faith. One way is favored by people who will call the neo Puritan tradition, they're evangelicals, Bible teaching people. And they are saying that faith is one thing, assurance is another. And that you can only be assured of your salvation if you do a fruit inspection and determine that you have the faith. In one sense, it's what I call second-order faith, it's faith in faith. The basis of the assurance is the works of faith. And that goes back to the days immediately following the Protestant Reformation, because Roman Catholic attacks, uh, that came from the Jesuits, They attacked the Protestants because they said Calvin and Luther's idea of justification by faith justifies loose living. See, haven't we heard that one before? You can't tell people now they're saved. Because if you tell them they're saved and they're assured they're saved, then there's no more incentive left to live a godly life. So in order for people to live godly lives, you've got to terrorize them by taking away their assurance. You've got to kind of beat them a little bit and you know, not let them get their hand in the, all the way in the cookie jar. Because if they do, they'll be spoiled and they won't live a godly life. They've got to live in fear of God's wrath. And I think it's those of you who perhaps have Roman Catholic friends or you come out of a Roman Catholic background, you know what I'm talking about. And there's not a sense of assurance. No priest can tell you in Roman Catholicism that he is saved, leave alone you. And that's part and parcel of the issue of the Reformation. That was what drove Martin Luther to Romans and that's what Luther said, I know I can be saved because that is assurance. So on the other side, you have what we'll call the first reformers who believe that faith equals and is identical to assurance. Now let me draw two timelines to make this idea clearer. And here's a person: the time that you become a Christian. Okay, you live an unbeliever. Now the person becomes a Christian. At this point, you have assurance. You have assurance because the Bible says, "Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved." He that believes is not condemned because he has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes should have everlasting life. That's the assurance. Now, the, on the other side, the view is more like this. person becomes a Christian. Live the Christian life. They think they became a Christian at this point. Might have had an experience, might have done And so they want to, they, they're doing inspections to check to see if the faith is there or not. And therefore the assurance in that view is contingent upon good works. Anybody think of some, a comment Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount that might refute the idea of detecting faith by works? What does he say that will happen in the last days? In the last days, many will say, Lord, Lord, you know, did we not do this? And what does it say that they'll say? Did we not do good works? So there are people that did good works, and apparently that through their good works they were unable to detect whether they're believers or not. Well, surely the Bible doesn't leave things up in the air and so contingent as this. Now, people will often cite, who are in this camp, will cite things like James. You know, faith that works is dead. That presupposes that the issue James is dealing with in James chapter 2 is faith at salvation and not faith later on in the Christian life that presupposes that the Epistle was written to a mixed group, believers and unbelievers. And James is just warning them, You see if you're in the faith, see if you're in the faith. problem with that interpretation is of James is that right in the first chapter, he unambiguously calls them brethren who have the implanted Word of God. So James is being addressed to believers. And if you look up the word salvation there, it's talking about trials in the Christian life. So that doesn't quite sail. All right, enough said. They're the two views, and the Reformed people will tend toward the left, the one on the left, and some dispensations will too, by the way. But it's an issue that, generally speaking, Calvin and Luther held to this position, and most people who are pretty careful exegetes of the text will hold to that that bright side. Okay, now we're going to go forward tonight, and we want to go on page seven to something else that occurs in Reformed theology. And this explains a vocabulary word that you'll often hear. And that is the idea of a covenant. So if you'll follow with me, um, I'm going to go through, as I said, I apologize in this area of the appendix of having to go through this and divorce from the text, but there's so much stuff here that if we went through all the text, we'd be staying weeks on one page. Look under covenant structure. Well, look under the organizing principle of the covenant. Here's the idea. Remember the covenants in the Bible? Can anybody remember where they are? What was the first one we covered? The Noahic covenant, remember? Who were the parties to the Noahic Covenant? Remember? Was it saved only? No, it was all men and animals. Right? Remember? I make the covenant with animals and every living thing that breathes. Remember that. Let's go forward to the next covenant. next covenant was Abrahamic Covenant. Who was that made with? Abraham and his descendants. Next covenant, what was the next one in biblical history? After the Abrahamic, had the Exodus, and what happened out in the desert? The Sinaitic covenant, Mosaic covenant. And who were the parties of the Mosaic covenant? The nation of Israel and the 12 tribes. Okay, let's go forward. What was the next covenant after the Mosaic covenant? You have Abrahamic, you have the Mosaic, and then you have the Davidic covenant. Now, there's a few other covenants stuck in there, and part of the Mosaic Covenant has the Land Covenant, the Palestinian Covenant, and so on. Come to Davidic Covenant. Who's that with? David and his, his descendants. And then remember, there's one other covenant in the Old Testament we worked, looked at, and that was in Jeremiah, the so-called New Covenant. And who was the party to whom the New Covenant was made? Israel. Was the church around Jeremiah's day? No. Israel was the covenant party, is the contracting party. Now all those are biblical covenants made with assortedly different groups for different purposes. But they all have a sort of covenant structure. Now here's what happened. The reformers noticed in scripture that there's this covenant. God was a covenant keeping God. So what they did is they thought to themselves, well, gee, you know, we could generalize all these covenants. We could inductively create a generic covenant above all the covenants. In other words, kind of like a a common denominator of all those covenants. And that would be a wonderful tool to express God's relationship with man and how God always works. He works through a covenant. He saves through a covenant. So they devised several covenants, two of which uh, are important for us tonight, one of which is mentioning in your notes, and I'll mention another one here if you want to add it to the margin somewhere. They believed in a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Now, neither of these covenants are explicitly stated in Scripture, right off the bat. These are induction, theological structures that have been deduced from speculating how God works. The covenant of works was this. It was made with Adam and Eve prior to the fall and guaranteed eternal life if they would perfectly obey. That's the covenant of works. But Adam and Eve couldn't keep the covenant of works. The covenant of works was violated, so God came out with a covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace says, I will save you. I'm only going to save, however, those who believe are the elect. So there's the covenant of works, there's the covenant of grace. Now, all those covenants that we just talked about, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the New covenant, we could throw in the Palestinian covenant, I could say the Levitical covenant, I mean, there's there's all kinds of covenants and subcovenants. We could throw them all in in a basket. Now, the covenant of grace is a structure that supposedly lies behind all those covenants and emerges in history in different forms. That's the idea of the covenant of grace. Now, the problem with that, if you look on that first paragraph, follow with me now. Reformed theology soon soon came to be identified as covenant theology because it organized its doctrine using the concept of a covenant. Since the Bible expressed salvation through covenants, this form seemed to later reformers like God's archetypical, that is, behind-the-scenes, generalized, soteriological, that is, saving, structure for managing all redemption. Reformed theology used several such covenant structures to express itself, but the most prominent is the covenant of grace must not be confused with any of the biblical covenants. It's not what they're talking about. It is a theological structure. And here's an important sentence. It is a theological structure that derives from an inductive generalization of biblical covenant material. It is the source of the frequent appearance of the word covenant in titles of ministries based upon Reformed theology. And you've all seen that. And I'm not saying get all upset if you see the word covenant. I'm just, I'm just identifying. That's where that word came from. That's why it's identified with people that follow that theology. However, if you come down to the next paragraph, it is a hypothesized contract between God and the elect to completely redeem them. Who were the parties in the way of covenant? They were animals and men. Animal's gonna be elect? No. So see, it doesn't quite fit the biblical material here. It's an abstraction and a generalization from the biblical material, but can't be identified with a particular biblical covenant. It's an objective basis is the atonement of Christ. Its subjective re- requirement is belief in the Son. It implies a unity of content amidst all the biblical covenants. It guarantees and applies all the blessings God has ordained for his elect. Logically, it is developed primarily from New Testament terminology, which is seen to be the final interpretation of earlier Old Testament texts. Now I want to, in the next page, from bottom of page 7 through page 8 through page 9, I'm going to, and I, I want to point out, if you'll mark in the margins of your notes, here is what this does to the study of Scripture. Thinking with this covenant idea, shapes how you interpret Scripture. Okay, let's, now, now we're going to do the effects of the covenant structure upon biblical interpretation. The covenant structure, with its soteriological orientation, has a number of important effects on how Reformed adherents must interpret Scripture. The primary effect, here's number one, the primary effect occurs in minimizing the differences among biblical covenants in order to emphasize the one covenant of grace that underlies them. Since the covenant of grace always involves the elect and only the elect, and always centers upon eternal salvation, texts that speak of temporal historical details that concern both believers and unbelievers tend to be neglected. Thus, by emphasizing this one underlying covenant Okay, here's, 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 the, here's the end result of this first point. The elect are conceived as one homogeneous group of people. That's why the difference between Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, between Jewish Old Testament saints and Gentile Old Testament saints and Christians who belong to the body of Christ. Three groups here we've just talked about, right? Jewish believers, Gentile believers like Job, New Testament, whether you're Jew or Gentile, one in Christ. So now we've got three three groups. But in covenant theology, the differences between those three are trivial. They're all the elect, one homogeneous body because it's the thinking behind this abstract contract. They are not looking at a contract made with Israel or how the church shares that blessing or something else. They're looking at one homogeneous group of elect people. Do you see how this plays out? Okay, so that's point one. Now let's read further. Same thing with that point. Reformed theologian insists there can be only one people of God. Distinctions among God's working with Gentile nations, Israel and the church, are suppressed. Replacement theology results whereby the church replaces chronologically Israel and God's plan. With the crucifixion of Christ, see see how easy anti-Semitism gets started here. Watch. It's a slippery slope. With the crucifixion of Christ, then, Israel's role is finished. In the perspective of covenant theology, terminology in the Abrahamic and other biblical covenants regarding Israel, the land, the temple, a theocratic political reign from Jerusalem is interpreted in spiritual terms that understand the deeper meaning to refer to the church. I'll give you an example. Anybody here ever ever read the book of Ezekiel? I know it's not a favorite devotional, but if you read in, De- in Ezekiel, there's some weird stuff going on there. It's talking about there's going to be a mountain in the latter days in Jerusalem and there's going to be a temple. The dimensions of the temple are given in the book of Ezekiel. It talks about water coming out on the top of the hill, running down to the Dead Sea, another one running out to the Mediterranean. Hasn't happened. So how, if you're a Reformed person, going to interpret that one? Oh, that's the church. See, the high mountain, that's, everybody's looking up to the church. Well, what do you do with the dimensions of the temple in the text? Oh well, that's that's just that's just literalism. We don't don't bother with literalism. We we, we just get the big idea. It's, it's just a temple of God. So now let's see what we're doing with the text here. So please notice what where this starts to lead. But now. Uh, if we say that number one in the top of that paragraph, if you put one, concede, the elect concedes as one homogeneous group, that's one thing to notice. The next thing to notice is Israel's role in history is finished. That's number two. If Israel is finished and we can't interpret the book of Ezekiel literally anymore, and we can't interpret the Davidic covenant as literal anymore, and we've got to spiritualize it, What does the interpreter now have to do to the Old Testament text? He has to correct it. Now, you'll notice a little footnote there, number seven. Now, if you look down at the bottom of the footnote, you'll see what they say themselves. It's not Charles Clough trying to slam these people. This is what they're saying, folks. Look at it. Here's a paper written in Westminster Theological Journal. The Reformed exegete approaches the Old Testament prophets from the perspective of the unity of the covenant. He clearly says that the New Testament sets aside and corrects, and I always have quotes around it because I'm quoting the man, sets aside and corrects literal interpretation of Old Testament prophets. So now we've got a situation where because we can't seem to get the New Testament text to agree to the Old Testament text, now we're going to force the Old Testament text into conformity with the New Testament text. Because we've got to have everything fulfilled in the New Testament. When it's not future, it's already fulfilled. Well, you can't get the fulfillment to fit in the New Testament, so you ram it and jam it and cram it. And you do it by changing the meaning of the Old Testament lexicon. So it's tampering with the lexicon of the Old Testament covenants. And this is why you often hear it said that dispensations are literal interpreters. Yes, we are. And we're for good reason. Because we feel very, very uncomfortable at giving up literal interpretation of the Old Testament text. For no apparent reason, other than this satisfying this abstraction that we've got, this one covenant thing going on. Okay, come, come down to the next paragraph. By downplaying differences in the various programs of God throughout history, covenant theology... Now, here's practical. You say, well, so far it's all theory. The various programs... Covenant theology must attribute... Now, watch this sentence. It must attribute to Old Testament saints an advanced understanding of the gospel that rivals that of New Testament saints. One covenant behind, see, everybody kind of knew the same thing. Abraham believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, like we do. Well, I'm sorry. He believed on what he knew of the Son, revealed in his era, two millennia before Jesus. But if you asked Abraham... how? because that was 2,000 years before Jesus... So we can't read back into the Old Testament what the New Testament does. And when you start doing that, now you've got a problem. As we'll get into that, because... Well, remember, so far this year, what have we done? One event. What was the event? Session of Christ. What's the next one we're going to deal with? Pentecost. Now, Pentecost begins a new thing. We lose the uniqueness of the church age if we smear it back into the Old Testament. Now, we don't appreciate what it is that New Testament saints have that Old Testament saints didn't have. they both believers, both are saved, both in eternity. But they don't live by the same modus vivendi. The way of living in the Old Testament is not the same as the way of living in the New Testament. The things are different. So, this paragraph points to the practical differences between living a life unto God in the Old Testament versus living a life unto God in the New Testament. It's different. So, for example, in the Old Testament exhortation says, bring a sacrifice into the temple. The meaning in this view is that there's a clear consciousness of Messiah as the coming Lamb of God. Historical progression in biblical revelation is not fully appreciated. And last sentence in that paragraph, features unique to the church age are left unappreciated. That's the practical effect of what's going on here, beside it being very cold here. Another effect of covenant theology upon biblical interpretation is how New Testament passages. Now, this is a hot topic. So I want to spend just a little time in, as we conclude tonight. I'm going to, we're going to conclude with this on page 9. And I want to spend some time here Let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Let's see an example of this. Okay, the issue that we're now looking at, let me put the word up on the gizmo here so we, uh, we can focus on what's going on. Here's the, here's the deal. X fulfills Y. In other words, some X being some New Testament thing is said to fulfill Y, which is said to be an Old Testament promise. Now in Acts 2, when Pentecost happens, we'll get into this in more detail, subsequent Thursday nights, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea. Now Peter's going to give his interpretation of what's going on here. And all you who live in Jerusalem, and let this be known to you, and give heed to My words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what is spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, I'll pour out forth My Spirit upon all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will pour out in those days forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. I will grant wonders in the sky above, signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor, smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, apparently Peter is saying that that passage in Joel is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So X would be Pentecost, in this case, and why would be the prophecy of Joel 2? The problem of this is that if you read the context of Joel, it's addressed to the nation Israel, not the church. It speaks of geological and astrophysical catastrophes and says that this is going to happen prior to the Kingdom of God and the end of history. The Reformed person interprets every time the New Testament mentions the verb fulfill, in the formula X fulfills Y, as that this is the literal fulfillment of that Old Testament passage in the legal sense and and so they attribute a meaning to the word fulfill in all cases it is a legal treaty or covenant fulfillment such that if Joel's passage is fulfilled and is passed, we have that event not to look forward to, right? If it's fulfilled in Pentecost, it's not out there in the future anymore, is it? So now what happens to the second advent of Christ? Well, I'll show you what happens. If a passage from the Old Testament prophet Joel, for example, is said in the New Testament that he fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, that must mean that Pentecost fulfills the whole complex of second advent prophecy in Joel. Old Testament textual details and geophysical catastrophism must be reinterpreted metaphorically. Say, so here we go again. Can't get the Old Testament to be literally fulfilled in the New Testament. We're going to ram it, cram it, and jam it until we make it fulfilled. And we're going to do it if we have to shift the meaning of the Old Testament lexicon of word meanings. Recent developments in Reformed theology, in fact, have taken this tendency to its logical conclusion. There will be no physical second advent of Christ. This event has already happened, presumably AD 70, when Jerusalem fell. More moderate Reformed theologians, as is R.C. Sproul and Ken Gentry, save a future advent, but strip away most Old Testament prophecy and the book of Revelation as already fulfilled. This position is known as preteritism and is now becoming very popular in evangelical circles. So it's not like predators and just burst forth on the scene. It's the result of thinking this way. Now you say, well, it looks like to me that that's what Peter says. He says this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Better be careful that we understand things. Let's turn to Matthew 2. Christmas story still looking at x fulfills y Matthew chapter 2 and you remember the christmas story that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Herod was afraid that Jesus was the Messiah see he, he didn't have any problem interpreting the bible I mean, he's an unbeliever and he knew what the prophecies meant so Jesus is born and Herod's got a problem here so he wants to eliminate the Messiah what does he do genocide every baby, two years and nine. Can you imagine this happening? I mean, mothers, think of what you'd like. A Roman soldier comes into your house, takes your kid, and chops his head off right in front of you. How do you like that? That's the cruelty that's going on here. That was genocide. If you haven't had kids, you don't know what that shock that would be to you, to see that happen in front of your face. And that's the the cruelty of the Herods. They've always done some stupid thing like that. Now the politicians just steal things out of the White House. They don't chop babies' heads off. Um, In Matthew chapter 2, we have a prophecy apparently fulfilled. If you look in verse 16, at the genocide passage, the babies are getting getting killed. He slew all the male children in Jerusalem in his environment from two years old and under. I wonder how many thousand that was. Then, verse 17, watch it. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Ooh, there's that verb, fulfill. And if you look in a study Bible, you'll see it's a citation from Jeremiah. Verse 18. Jeremiah chapter 31. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. The problem here is, if we go back to Jeremiah 31 and we draw a map, here's the city of Jerusalem, here's Bethlehem, and here's Ramah. What was going on in Jeremiah 31? What was going on was, remember, fall of the kingdom? And what was happening in the town of Ramah, it was a rendezvous point for all the people that were being taken out of the land going all the way over into the Tigris-Euphrates Valley to be settled in the Assyrian Babylonian area. These were prisoners of war. Hundreds and hundreds of men, young women, young men particularly, the old people they didn't care about. didn't want to worry about nursing homes. They take the people that they know they can work. This is Daniel and all his crowd. So here they go, going through this village. So, the picture is these women weeping as they watch their sons, they watch their husbands in chains going into captivity. Never to come back in the land. So it's on the road from Jerusalem over through into the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Now let's think about racial in verse 18. Why is racial mentioned? Rachel wasn't living man. Well, it turns out that this is in an area where the Jewish tribe that descended from Rachel lived. And so you, you can study the prophets and that's the way they did. But some observations about that verse is quoted in verse 18. This is the X here. Okay, we're looking at X. Number one, it doesn't fit Jeremiah 31 as a, as a legal covenant fulfillment first of all right off the bat the Jeremiah passage isn't a prophecy it's a description of history there's nothing to be fulfilled it's just a description of an event that's happening as the nation is falling it's not a prophecy not a vision number two it's a wrong town it's Ramah it's north of Jerusalem not south of Jerusalem Number three, nobody's getting killed here. People are going away alive. That's why people are crying about it. So there's all kinds of conflicts between making this verb, X fulfills Y, doesn't fit what Matthew's doing. Now certainly Matthew knew what he was doing. Matthew's not stupid. Matthew knew Jeremiah 31 or he never would have cited Jeremiah 31. Why did Matthew cite Jeremiah 31 with a formula, X fulfills Y? That's the question that the exegete has to answer. And you have to study the text carefully to understand Matthew's use. Stop trying to ram, cram and jam our meanings into how the synoptic gospel writers are writing. Maybe they didn't use the word fulfill like we do. And how are we going to find out? By repeatedly looking at passage after passage after passage, getting a concordance, studying fulfill, putting it here, 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 here. How do these guys use it? And you will find that they use it many ways. One way they use it is to point to analogies, they aren't even looking at historical fulfillments. They're looking for pattern analogies, so that the pattern of things that happen in why New Testament times, is an analog of what happened in Old Testament times. Why do they argue by analogy? Because it's the same God who controls history. God has a finesse. He has a repeated protocol in which he operates. And you identify the hand of God by parallelism. Now, you say, well, that sounds like you're trying to escape the text. No, you're not. How do, you, how do we today identify God's work in our lives? We argue by analogy, don't we? How do you apply a promise? By analogy. Do you have an experience? Like Isaiah says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, his mind is stayed on thee. That was addressed to people going into an exile. We go into an exile. We might, But are we going into an exile? No. Well then, how come we're quoting Isaiah 26.3? Because analogously, the situation has parallels. It's not a fulfillment, it has parallels. So, this is why we believe that there are, there are many ways, and you can go through this, uh, scholars have, have done this, I'm, this is not new with me. You can go through this and it turns out there's about five or six different ways the verb fulfill is used. Only one of them means fulfillment of a covenant promise, literally. The New Testament people are not citing the Old Testament in a mechanical fulfillment thing in the sense of fulfill prophecy. They're not doing that. And you can check it out for yourself by just taking a concordance and watching the context. So to sum up the problem here, Reformed theology, utilizing the concept of a covenant structure behind history, not only has frozen the 16th and 17th century level of theology into permanent creeds, but has also established its own unique rules of Bible interpretation. It therefore centers upon sociology, the doctrine that was central to the Reformation era, and a very close relationship between the state and the church, It views with deep suspicion any further extension of sola scriptura principle in reforming theology. It doesn't want to reform theology anymore. It did it all. It's all done. It's all over. So this is why next week when we get into the rise of dispensational theology, we're going to see that's what dispensational does. It starts with the same principle the reformers had, sola scriptura, and says, now wait a minute. Whoa. Let's look at the text. And let's see if this really means what got thrown into these creeds pretty fast. Let's relook this thing about prophecy. Let's study the word play ra'al and how it's fulfilled in the New Testament. Were the New Testament authors really looking at this as the final fulfillment? Or were they simply saying by analogy? You know where it occurs a lot? And Matthew's good at this. Think of the analogy between Jesus and Israel. Can you think of some? You know the one, another case where the word fulfill is? After the, the genocide, how did Jesus avoid the genocide, by the way? Remember what happened? Where does parents take off to? Egypt. Where did they get the money for the trip? Wise men brought it. So, the parents got, got their fare, and they got some money for a trip. Hide for two years. Okay. They go down there, and when Matthew announces that Jesus comes back, he says, he quotes Hosea, and he says, And it is fulfilled that out of Egypt I will call my son. Now, the passage in Hosea is not a prophecy either. It's describing the coming out of the Israelites from Egypt as the exodus. Not a prophecy. It's a statement of a historical fact. Well, then why does Matthew use fulfill? Because he's saying, as goes Israel, so goes Jesus. There's an analogy between the nation and the Messiah. How many years in the desert? Forty. How many days of temptation in Jesus' life? Forty. And so you can make pile up one analogy on top of another. And Matthew does that. Is that the saying that it's a fulfillment? In the sense of a fulfillment of a particular prophecy? Absolutely not. He's talking about analogies. Okay, well, we'll go, we'll stay this further as we go on. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that you are sovereign Lord of history and that history has meaning and it has purpose. And because history has meaning and purpose, our lives in history have meaning and purpose. We thank you that the, the whole has a wonderful grandeur to it. And because the whole does, the parts do and we're of those those parts. And our lives have grandeur and meaning because you have ordained that for your entire creation. We thank you for calling us to your Son, for the work of salvation that is complete on the cross, and for the fact that you do not allow us to enter into human merit, but that it is wholly a gift from you to us through the Lord Jesus Christ in order that it might be perfect, and because it's perfect, it's absolutely secure. And because it's secure, we can have perfect assurance. We thank you now in, our son, in your Son's name. Amen. We have time for some Q&A here, if you want. help' freeze before. Yes, baby. Gracias.
1: I realize there is, doctrine is very important, but the more the doctrine gets away from Scripture and is dependent on a creed or somebody else's interpretation like other writings other than Scripture, um, the more that part is separated from the body of Christ.
0: Um, well, the problem is, is the basis of unity, and it's always been a struggle. Uh, in Christendom uh, about the unity of the body, um, but for our own encouragement uh, the disciples weren't very unified either. Um, they had differences, they had arguments, um, Peter and Paul uh, Peter, Peter, and versus Paul in the leadership of the church, which we we'll get into in Acts, had quite a falling out. But in most cases when you look at it, the way to look at that is that the Lord's teaching the church as a body and um, the the training of the church to maturity hasn't been finished yet and so there's there's a conflict yes um, but it seems if you look at church history that progress is made because one thing that didn't happen and hasn't happened for 1,400 to 1,600 years in church history nobody's, no, no orthodox Christians ever argued about the person of Christ. That was all settled. But if you go back and you read the church fathers in the first century, the second century, the third century, man, a lot, they were going at it. And you could have argued back then, oh, where's our unity? Uh, well, the unity would come. It was just that that took four or five centuries to get there. And for some reason, God seems to use that as a teaching tool. That's the way he has worked in history. The other kind of insulting thing to us all, in that how he he works in the church's life, is that in most cases, progress has not been made until heresy arose. Uh, It's pretty amazing to think about that. That it, it always takes severe heresy to get the church to, to define what this says the scripture. In our own century, the heresies uh, that have come to us from the outside, even into, to threaten orthodoxy or conservative Christianity, has been largely in the area of language and the nature of language, philosophically. Those of you who study that, it's Wittgenstein and these guys at the beginning of the century, and so forth, and that came into the church, and believe it or not, that caused a controversy in the 70s. And it really got a lot of Christians bent out of shape, and today, of course, very few Christians read anymore, and so, because it's part of our culture not to. And the result is that we've forgotten what happened in the 70s. We had a severe fight in the 70s. You know what it was over? Inerrancy of Scripture. I mean, we had evangelical seminaries and professors and faculty saying, well, I believe the Bible's authoritative but not inerrant. Well now, excuse me, but how do you have the Bible as an authority if it's inerrant? Because how do I decide what's error and what's not error? Well then, whatever it is that decides between error and truth, that's the authority. So now, if you don't have an inerrant Bible, you've got to have an inerrant something else to judge the errors in the Scripture. And the something else now becomes a new authority. So that went on. So I don't get discouraged by it. It's, that's why we have to be gracious um, and not get into a shouting match. But I think thought leads in directions. And God has given us an ability to reason through. And he's also given us the scripture. And he's given us so many tools to study the scripture where the reformers never had. I mean, think about it. You can go in any Christian bookstore now and buy powerful tools that Calvin and Luther never had. You have have multiple translations. They didn't. In many cases, they had to translate the thing out of a scholarly language themselves to to get it into their own language and vernacular. Um, They didn't have complete concordances like we do. They didn't have Bible dictionaries like we do. They didn't have uh, results of archaeology. They had no Dead Sea Scrolls. So, in spite of the fact we live in an era of conflict, the Lord has graciously supplied us with tools that they never had. And that's why I'm just saying, that's why I'm trying to walk walk a delicate road here. I don't want you to walk out of this class on Thursday night thinking that Reformed Theology is a big danger, because it really isn't. I mean, those people did some wonderful things in church history, and we can be thankful for them. It's just that in certain areas of the text, it doesn't fit. And I'm sorry, but 1 John 2.2 is still 1 John 2.2, and you can spout off all you want to about limited atonement, but whatever you say in the final now has got to fit 1 John 2, too. And you've got to fit world that can't mean just the world of the elect. There's something saying there. And yes, it doesn't fit quite the theology structure, but let's see if we can maybe modify the theology structure. That's all.
2: Yes, Laura.
0: That's right. Uh, the the problem The problem in a lot of evangelical Bible teaching churches, frankly, is that they don't have a structured theology at all. And uh, they have a church creed, and the only time people ever think of a church creed is when they have to write a new church constitution. I never read it any other time. And the result is that the teaching is fragmentary. And when you get out there and have to take on the world system, this is why I believe the Reformed theology is so. Um, so popular in this area. Uh, people have commented to me that it's the Middle Atlantic area of the United States where Reformed theology seems to be coming in strong. You know, what, what, what is culturally going on in the Middle Atlantic? We go to Washington, D.C. I mean, this is the center of the culture movers of our nation. And this is the place where you get whacked with big, heavy, anti-biblical worldviews. You don't get hacked with them out in Kansas someplace. It's here. This is the place where the, the, the head-butting occurs. And so that being the case, then people gravitate to a structure. And Reformed theology, frankly, gives us very strong structure. It makes you feel, oh, you know, I, I can rest. And, and the, the structure will defend me. And in, in, in some cases it will, yes, because doctrine, remember, we've said doctrine is interrelated. One doctrine helps another doctrine. So, so you're, you, Laura's right when she points out that, yes, we can learn lots of things from R.C. Sproul. I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying when R.C. Sproul tells me that, um, Jennifer, that uh, Garden of Eden is symbolic, uh, I say, huh? Excuse me, uh, R.C.? I don't think so. On what basis? Well, because uh, it's not here today. Well, if there was an away flood, why would the Garden of Eden still be around? So, that's the thing I'm saying. And it, it behooves us as Christians to just understand where people are coming from. And then, like Laura said, the guy's great on church history. Soak in it. It's great. Yes? Well, I've always been, I've always
2: been. Mm-hmm. Origin. Here or here. Can I trust him in something that I don't yet know? Therefore, can I really learn from him? I mean, how
0: wise is that? Well, you, you have to go... Uh, the, the problem we have in this, George, is that nowhere in our public school education, and most of us have gone to public school, have we ever been taught to think on the large-scale picture and so we come very ill-equipped to deal with the very question you ask because the question of Augustine is one in which he adopted subtle premises from the philosophical world and the only way you can smoke them out you don't detect them right away the only way you detect them is that finally this strand of thought says something, boom and it's in direct collision with scripture and then you say, well, gee there's something going on here. And then you have to kind of walk back that line of thinking until you see, well, why was he Why? What what got him off there? And then you, oh, okay, he's off here. So it's going back and checking the evidences and the source material. You could go out here in the street and I will guarantee you if you went to a hundred people who believed in evolution, I will guarantee you that 95 of them have never read Darwin's Origin of Species. I will guarantee that they have never, ever done field work in geology. So why, do, why does 95 out of 100 believe it? Because what does Paul say in Colossians? Following the traditions of men. Most thought is a traditional thought, even ours. And that's why the church has tried to have creeds and why if you get a good creed, it's a powerful tool because it's sanctified tradition. And that's why you have to look at the creeds. You have to look at this. You can't generate your own theology in your own generation. No one can do that. You can't start at zero and create your own theological system. You can't do that. No one can do it. The only people that profess to do that are the cults. Somebody has a vision in New York State and he starts the Mormon Church or something. Um, That's how cults get started. Because one guy does try to do it all. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. So, in the final analysis, the Bereans were more noble because they tested it by the Scripture. And that's the only test I know of to get back to eventually. When it doesn't fit, something here doesn't... Fit, right. And that's why this book is so tremendously important. And we can thank the Reformed people because who made this book emerge historically? Where was it before Calvin and Luther? Inside in Latin that nobody could read with a few copies. I think it was marvelous that simultaneously the Reformation was what great technological invention. Printing press. Thank God. So, it goes back to check the source material. If R.C. Sproul says something about church history, he, he has he's well-read in church history, you don't think he's right, go back and check the sources. Gosh, with the Internet and the libraries we have today, it's not that far away. But you do have to be careful. You really have to be careful about things. And so there's no substitute for a constant diet of Scripture. I keep telling the pastor because when you're a pastor, what happens to you, among other things, is that you get a series of these crises happen. And you feel like, man, you know, I, I got this hot potato over here. I got a hot potato over here. I got another one over here. So what you're what you're tempted to do is stop what you're doing and deal with this thing. Stop what you're doing and go deal with this one. Well, I apprenticed under a guy who'd been in the pastor for many decades. And he said, and he had a congregation of close to a thousand people. So you can imagine how many crises he had in one week. And he says, you know what? He he says, I just get up there and I teach the Word of God verse by verse, text by text, and I spray the whole congregation with it. That's how I put out the fires. And I don't go chase fires. I just spray everybody with it. And that's the way you have to be. Because you can't, you can't compromise that teaching, ministry, because if you are faithful to God to teach through verse by verse, you'll eventually get into a text that help, helps people. But you'll never get to the text if you're going to flit from one place to another place. And the worst part about that is people who stay under that kind of a ministry can't think anymore. Because all he got is little pieces here and there, piece here, piece there. They can't get it together. But the world's got it together, see? The world's got... Satan has got a very slick, coherent worldview. Well, I won't say that. He's got a thing that appears to be coherent. So, that's what we're up against. A powerful spirit of this world. And we're going to be rolled over like... It's a steamroller rolling over us unless we have the tools. And it's the scripture that gives us the tools. And we're out of time. So, see you next week.